right. Today we're going to start a brand new series on the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. So if you want to grab your Bible and open it, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1 for the entire message today. Women are amazing. Can I get an amen on that? Hey, there we go. I thought I could get an amen on that one. But our society owes women a great debt. And I'm surrounded by some uh, amazing women in my life. Over this last week, I haven't been uh, so close. My wife's been away in uh, Missouri, but she's back. So praise the Lord for that. And if it looks like I'm a little sickly or something like that, uh, that's the reason why. Is because I ate oatmeal for every meal. Uh, But my wife, my mom, my mother-in-law my sister-in-law. So I've got some strong and godly women in my life that have made a big impact on me. And we're going to be talking about Timothy. And Timothy had strong, godly women that made a huge impact on his life as well. His mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois were women of sincere faith. Eunice and Lois poured their faith into Timothy. Now, scholars believe that Timothy's father had passed away at this time. But these two women show why we do baby dedications. Because when we commit to live out the gospel in front of our children, uh, it makes a difference. And we see that in the life of Timothy. Now, 1 Timothy is a book that's written by the Apostle Paul around 65 AD. And Paul traveled all over the known world 2,000 years ago preaching the gospel and starting churches. And he had many co-workers during this time that helped him along the way, Barnabas, Silas, and others. But Timothy was one of those co-workers. Now, Paul and Timothy uh, met in the city of Lystra, and that was the city that Timothy was raised. Lystra was a Roman colony in the province of Galatia, which is now present-day Turkey. And Paul and Barnabas visited Lystra on their first missionary journey, and God did many works through them, and they saw many people come to Christ, including Eunice, Lois, and Timothy. Now, Paul came back to Lystra on his second missionary journey, and in Acts 16, he sees Timothy's faith and that it is growing, and Paul begins to mentor young Timothy. And at this time, he was most likely around the age of 18 to 21. Now, Timothy was young, but he was a godly person, and he was one of Paul's disciples and co-worker, and he was a friend for Paul for the rest of his life. They traveled all over the world together, Berea and Athens and Corinth and Jerusalem, and they together preached the gospel and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Timothy was even uh, with Paul there in prison in Rome. And Paul said this about Timothy in his letter to the church in Philippi, in Philippians 2.19. This is what Paul said. He said, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. After Several years of mentorship, Paul begins to send Timothy out on his own assignments. And that's where we find Timothy in the book of 1 Timothy. He's the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And last year we went and looked uh, at the book of Ephesians. And we looked at Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus. 
And we remember that Ephesus was struggling in a persecuted place, in a hostile context. But Paul sent Timothy because he trusted Timothy. Ephesus was an important church, and it would be for hundreds of years after that. By now, the church was large. Hundreds of people meeting in small house churches all over the surrounding area. And Timothy was sent there to train the elders that led those house churches. And uh, they had no formal uh, seminary education or Bible school education. So Timothy went there to teach them how to be the church. Now, some of these elders were probably gifted speakers and teachers, but most likely many were just ordinary working men, uh, men that loved Jesus and wanted to serve him with their lives. So this letter from Paul to Timothy is the instruction that Paul gave this young man on how to lead the church of Ephesus. My son Noah loves instructions. He loves Legos. They've been his go-to toy since he was very young. And he has on his uh, dresser and on his bookshelves probably 50 large sets of Legos that are trophies to his love for instruction. Now, Chloe, on the other hand, she loves free play and she loves imagination. She loves to dance and to make up songs and she does not love instructions. She tried several times when she was younger to sit down and do a Lego set, but something else always came up where she forgot that she needed to color a picture or paint something or go and run around. And last year, though, eventually she did finish a whole Lego set this last December, and she is very, very proud of it. She sat down and she followed the instructions. Now, instructions are simply putting things together in the right order. And there are some things in the church of Ephesus that are out of order, wrong priorities, things that are out of balance, and they needed instructions. So let's look in the first verse of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. We see a greeting here from Paul. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God and our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, some backstory here. Uh, years before, in the book of Acts, Paul warned the church in Ephesus that false teachers were going to come and pull people away from the true doctrine and from the truth. And that just goes to show you that drawing a crowd is not proof of good doctrine. So, Paul warned them here in Acts 20, verse 21 or excuse me, verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So these false teachers that Paul had warned the church of Ephesus show up in chapter one of Paul's letter to Timothy in verse three. Paul says this to Timothy. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, and here it is, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. See, different doctrine is a problem. But see, the problem with different doctrine is that it's interesting. It's new. It's different. Every few years we see a a new Christian book that comes out and people get really excited about it because it's different and it's unique and that makes it 
interesting. A few years ago, a controversial pastor by the name of uh, Rob Bell put out a New York Times best-selling book called Love Wins, which makes some good points, but ultimately it questions the existence of hell. And he encourages the reader, and this is the dangerous part, he encourages the reader to read the Bible literally and not literally. What does that mean? It means you decide what you think in the Bible is right instead of literally believing what the Bible says. Now, see, the oldest parts of the Bible are believed to be over 3,500 years old, and the most recent parts of the Bible are 1,900 years old. So what does that mean? It means these scriptures have passed through the filter of millions of minds of followers of Christ. So when something comes out that's new in a uh, following that's over 2,000 years old, you need to be careful of that. I've heard people say that before where they come and tell me, hey, Pastor Phil, I've heard this thing in the Bible that I've never seen before. I've, I've just pulled this out and, and, and look at it. It's interesting. It's new. I'm like, look, that's not what it says. You're taking it out of context here. Hey, this isn't what you're supposed to believe. But see, when something comes out new about the Bible, we ought to be careful with it. But see, we love new things. New things can be exciting. But sometimes these new things are just clickbait. They're old false doctrine that is repackaged in a new way to make it look exciting. Are you familiar with that term clickbait? How many of you have ever heard that before? Uh, you've seen it before, act it out, especially if you're on uh, the internet. Here's, here's an example of clickbait. Man tries to hug a wild lion. You won't believe what happens next. Well, we know it's probably one of two things, right? Either the, a lion hugs him back or he bites his face off. One of those two things. But, but those things are interesting. Here's another one. Baby ducks see water for the first time. Can you believe what they do? Now, you know, each and every one of you in here wants to know in both of those stories what happens next. That's how clickbait works. Let me just spoil alert. All the baby ducks drowned is what happened there. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But why are we so easily distracted? Why do these things pique our interest, this new and different things that are out of the ordinary? We just got to know them. Acts 17, 21, in, uh, uh, Paul there in Athens tells us that the people of Athens would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And we, we just love to hear new things. But beware of new and different doctrine, because when you're different from the truth, you're false. So what is this different doctrine that we see here in the first chapter of Timothy? See, false teachers at the church of Ephesus were doing this. They were devouting, in verse 4, it says they were devouting themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So this is what these false teachers were doing. You know the genealogies that we all like to skip over in the Old Testament? Yeah, right? And if we do them in our devotions, we're like, oh man, I don't want to do... But this is what they were doing. They were looking back at these genealogies and they were making up stories. And they were saying, oh yeah, this guy, he did this, and this guy, they did that. And they're making up these myths and speculating over these endless names in the Bible. And apparently it was working too. They were spending way too much time looking into these people and speculating. Instead of grounding themselves in important things, they were studying all these peripheral things. See, living out 
our faith and reproducing our faith is what we are called to do. See, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a life group or a Bible study that has gone off the rails because our attention is taken on peripheral things that do not strengthen our faith. How many of y'all have ever been a part of this where it just gets off track? Maybe it's politics, opinions, or obscure Bible facts. I've been in several life groups over my life that have derailed on this discussion of this, Nephilim. How many of y'all know what Nephilim are? Nephilim are, are, are mentioned two times in the Bible, and later on we think they're these giants. But I've, I've been in part of life groups over and over again, where people bring, well, what do you think about this? And then the whole life group ends up getting derailed on this subject that we know very little about. The Bible tells us very little about it. If you went home and Googled it, you would find page after page after page of speculation about who these people were. But in the end, how does that strengthen our Christian walk? See, as life group leaders and pastors, we need to fight to keep the real focus on discipleship and not on endless speculation. See, the goal is to teach people to reproduce their faith. See, that is why you're here today. You're not here today to just listen and just to keep it in. The goal here today is for you to come and hear God's word so that you can one day give God's word. It's so that you can reproduce your faith. See, don't take the gospel for granted. You might think, well, people already know the gospel, so let's get past that. Let's just move on. But the point is, can you reproduce the gospel? Can you share the simple gospel? See, Bible knowledge doesn't stop with the head. It goes from the head to the heart to the feet. When you're done learning about it is when you are acting it out. You only know enough about a subject when you start living it out. So don't get stuck on vain conversations and endless speculation. See, people need to be ready to face the hardships of this world. And Nephilim aren't going to help you at work when your boss yells at you and throws you under the bus. What's going to help you is the teachings in the Bible that tell us to love and to forgive and to avoid bitterness. We need to make sure we're grounded in our faith. That's not to say that you can't you know, look at different obscure things in the Bible, but you make sure that you are grounded in your faith. See, people can take God's word and they can twist it so far out of context. Cults are built on these practices. People are killed with twisted scripture as the motivation. See, every person that gets up and quotes God's word and quotes scripture should not be followed. You shouldn't just blindly say, they are quoting God's word, so I will follow them. See, some people know that we respect God's word, and they will do their best to use that against us or for their favor. We need to be careful about false teachers. First uh, Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 5 goes on, and this is an awesome verse, and I'm going to be honest with you, I've never seen this before, or I've never taken enough time to really look at it. This is an amazing verse. This is what he says. He says, to avoid those myths, those speculations, that vain discussion, and this is what he says. The aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love. Where do we get that love? It issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. 
Man, there's so much packed into that verse right there. Paul right here drops a doctrine bomb on us. The, age, uh, the aim of our charge is love. See, the aim is not to show how smart we are or have, that we have some unique, obscure uh, fact about the Bible that we can share with people. No, the aim of the church is the mission of love that flows out of right thinking, a pure heart, and its sincere faith. Here's the question this morning. Is that your aim? Is that your aim? Because we are the church. The building's not the church. The pastor and the staff is not the church. You are the church. So what is your aim today? Is your aim love? It's not about what we know. It's about what we live. It's not about stuffing our heads full of knowledge. No, it's about walking it out for the community around us. Because the aim of our mission is love that flows out of right thinking, a pure heart, and a sincere faith. In the military, they have this term, mission creep. Have you ever heard that before? Mission creep. What that means is the mission expands beyond its original goals. And it's dangerous. And it makes that group ineffective. And we have a lot of mission creep in the church. We've got a lot of people distracted from the mission of the gospel by fighting political battles. For too long, the church in America has married ourselves to a political party rather than marrying ourselves to Jesus Christ. We've got mission creep going on. We have people in the church that are distracted by building themselves a little kingdom within the church rather than furthering the kingdom outside the church. We have people that get distracted on their opinion, and then they push that opinion like it's scripture, but they don't have a chapter and a verse. See, imagine how effective we could be as a church if we were all pulling in the same direction. Have you ever moved furniture with somebody, and you realize you weren't on the same page? Yeah, I've done that before, and and things get pretty uh, difficult, and they get dangerous sometimes. You're trying to flip it this way, and the other guy's trying to flip it that, and you're both fighting against each other. And so so many times in the church we can get that way because we don't have that aim, the gospel. That is it. Here at, at Clarksburg Baptist Church, we define it this way. Gather, grow, and give. Gather, grow, and give. The aim of our mission is love. So what's your aim? What's your motivation? It goes on in verse 6 talking more about these false teachers. It says, certain persons, by swerving from these, that mission, have wandered away into vain discussion. How many of you have ever been a part of vain discussion before in a church, right? <laughs> Business meeting, you know, council deacons meeting, vain discussion in a church, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about what they make confident Assertations. I like that right there, right? How many of y'all have ever knew you didn't have a lot of factual uh, grounds to stand on in an argument, so you got louder and you talked faster, right? <laughs> you thought, if I talk louder, they're going to believe me, and, then, and that's it. I don't have a lot of facts to go on. That was my go-to move when I was a teenager. Man, I was just going to speak louder, speak faster, give some kind of weird illustration, and get out of there and act like I won the argument. But see, on the flip side, how many of you have known older, wiser people They didn't need to talk loudly, and they didn't need to speak fast to dispense their kernels of wisdom. See, false teachers can be persuasive. 
They can be confident and they can be passionate and they can plaster big white smiles on their faces and wear nice fancy suits, but none of that matters. The Bible is all that matters. So these false teachers in Ephesus were trying to impose Old Testament Jewish law onto these Greek Gentile converts. They wanted them to jump through these hoops of religiosity to get to Christ. Circumcision and abstaining from marriage, not eating meat. Now see, the Old Testament law isn't bad. The Old Testament law is good because it shows us where we fall short. It shows us that we can never live up to it. First Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 8 goes on. It says, now that we know the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, oh man, we fit into this list already. For the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, that's fornication, sex outside of marriage, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, that's kidnappers, liars, here we are again in this list, all of us, right? Perjurers, oh, and here we are again, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which we have been entrusted. See, Jesus came to save sinners. And if you're not a sinner, then you can't take advantage of the Savior. But praise the Lord, we all know that we all fall short. Check it out, Paul knew it too. In verse 12, he says, I thank him who gives me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Check out these next four words, they're awesome. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in my unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. In another version, it says, uh, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Paul says, on this pile of sinners that we all fall into, I am at the top. I'm the biggest of all. But here again, those four words pop up. But I received mercy. Why did he receive mercy? For this reason, that in me, as the foremost or the chief, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were believing him in eternal life. If you're believing in Jesus Christ and you believe in him for eternal life, the fact that Jesus saved Paul, it is an example to you that when people do horrible things to you and people stab you in the back, what that is is an opportunity to show the grace and mercy and forgiveness that Jesus has shown to us. You see that when someone tries to tear you through the mud? What that is is a big opportunity to show what Jesus did for you. And just like Paul said, but I received mercy, are the people in your life saying that about you? Yeah, I did this to Pastor Phil, I did that, and then I said this, but you know what? I received mercy. That's what we're supposed to live out. That's what we're supposed to walk out. And Paul goes on, says to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Paul says, I was the worst of the worst, but Christ saved me because he wanted to show how big his grace was. Paul says, with me, Jesus put his patience on display. And if he can save me, he can save you. Paul says, if anything that I've become, don't praise me, but give all the glory to God. See, God showed through this murderous, blasphemous, wasted former life of Paul the most beautiful picture of redemption. Verse 18, he gives Timothy an assignment. He said, this charge I entrust to you. Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecy previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, that faith and good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I'm handed over to Satan, that they may, not, uh, they may learn not to blaspheme. You see this theme in First and Second Timothy that Paul is worried about Timothy finishing well, and that he's worried about him falling by the wayside. And he knew that Timothy had gifts and talents that could be used for a great purpose, but he was worried that he would slip. And then Paul gives some examples of some other men before him that have shipwrecked their faith by taking their eyes off the mission. See, Paul had to remove false teachers from the church by the name of Hymenaeus and Alexander. And they were on their own now. They were without a church family. But Paul was hopeful that they would learn the error of their ways. See, church discipline is never an easy thing, but the purpose is always reconciliation. Scripture here warns us again and again to watch out for false doctrine. You know, the word doctrine literally means instruction. Doctrine is what in the Bible, what we know about the Bible, what God teaches us about himself, about ourselves, about heaven, hell, salvation, and how we treat others. And the only way that you will know doctrine is to know your Bible. Hymenaeus and Alexander shipwrecked their faith by taking uh, their aim off of producing love motivated by sincere faith and right thinking. And instead, they swerved in their faith into these uh, Times of wanting recognition as being Bible scholars, even though they didn't have true Bible knowledge. They wanted to be respected, and they wanted to be lifted up as leaders for all the wrong reasons, and it wrecked them. So here's the question. What's your aim today? Where is your rudder pointed? No one wants to shipwreck in their faith, but people do. Lies can be enticing. And we can convince ourselves of all kinds of falsity. And we can convince ourselves of all kinds of different doctrine. And the truth is we're being preached at all day, every day. Our music is trying to teach us and preach to us a message. Our friends are preaching their opinions to us. Books and movies are spreading their gospel. But praise the Lord, we have been left with instructions. Praise the Lord, God didn't leave us all alone. Maybe you're a person that loves instructions. Maybe you're a person that you don't. You'd rather be independent. And when you're putting together a shelf at home, the last thing you do is take out that instruction manual when you've built it all cattywampus. That's a funny word, isn't it? But the amazing things about the instructions found in God's word is that they bring freedom. And they bring the ability to use your gifts and to be creative and to fulfill your purpose. So we need to fight 
false doctrine. We need to fight vain distractions, and we need to fight speculation. Why? Because the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. We could do everything else right in the church. We could have everything else in order in the church, but if we miss this, we have failed. Let's stand to our feet and bow our heads as the band comes. Maybe you're a new believer and you don't know where to start. Maybe you're a mature Christian and you've taken your eyes off of the aim. You've gotten stuck in all the political things and all the back door stuff and all the influential type things and you like to push your opinion. Maybe you've been believing a different gospel that this world preaches and you need to commit to put your faith in God's word and not in man's word. We have instructions. God's way is the best way. And God's way can be found in God's word. Very heads bowed and eyes closed. As a band plays today, if you've got anything on your heart, God spoke to your heart about the message, maybe you've been trusting different gospels, maybe you've been caught up in vain distractions, speculation, The altar's open this morning. You come now.